0: And one and two and two and one. And... Oh shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro and today is part two of our interview with Audrey Tong. She is the Digital Minister for Taiwan. In part one, we discussed her journey as a civic organizer, beginning with how she dropped out of school at the age of 14 to start an IT company and concluded with her involvement with GovZero. For those who didn't get a chance to listen to part one, Audrey has a very rich international work history and her influence ranges from coding to Silicon Valley startups to research and even grassroots activism that helped to transform a government. And she was able to do all this before she was 40. And to top it all off, even though she is currently the digital minister for Taiwan, she officially retired about five years ago. Hello, Audrey, and thanks for joining us again. Hello, happy to be back. Good local time, everyone. Now, in part one, we left off with you reciting a beautiful poem that has deep meaning for you. Mm -hmm. But chronologically, We were about to discuss your role with the Sunflower Movement, and that's where we're going to continue. So first of all, tell us what is the Sunflower Movement?
1: The Sunflower Movement, which was um, started in the night of uh, March 17, uh, and it's also called the March 18 Movement, is a 2014 activity where students and many civil society organizations occupy the parliament completely peacefully. For three weeks in protest, at the very, very beginning of this sudden kind of ramming through uh, the Parliament of the Cross-Strait Service and Trade Agreement with Beijing, and but it very quickly turned into a demonstration, this kind of demo uh, where people who occupy the Parliament start deliberating each and every aspect of the CSSTA, including whether we need to allow Beijing components in our then new 4G network, which is a deliberation everybody else is having nowadays. And mm-hmm. so the the clean pass deliberation. And so after three weeks, it was um, a success. People came to a set of rough consensus, a set of demand, the head of parliament agree on all those demands. And then Taiwan's politic norm really changed.
0: Now, what was your, your personal involvement? Because from my understanding, you, you helped, you were not necessarily a lead organizer. Am I wrong in thinking this? Well. When it was still a protest
1: uh, near the parliament, uh, at the streets, I helped providing uh, HSDPA, uh, that's uh, like pre-4G connectivity uh, Mm. with my phone actually, and setting up the uh, live streaming gig uh, with people from the Black Island youth who lend me the equipment. They are the main student group that did the Occupy planning uh, and also um, independent media such as Indie.id and so on. Basically, I was, I guess, part of the communication team, uh, but very quickly after they occupied the parliament and started live streaming in from it, I also helped coordinating the logistics, including uh, transcribing each and every NGO's deliberation, live streaming, uh, getting them a bandwidth uh, of a uh, fiber optic line uh, and things like that, along with people from the GovZero movement.
0: So were you inside parliament during that time? Only once
1: to to bring the uh, Ethernet uh, equipment necessary for the people inside uh, to connect to the outside. But once they got the live streaming set up, and I would uh, go there again, uh, bringing with myself 350 meters of CAT six cables uh, and so on. Uh, but after that setup, I can you know safely uh, watch the live stream behind screens.
0: Now, one of the things um, when I was learning a little bit more about the Sunflower Movement and saw the footage. Uh, you guys had furniture up against the doors. We, there was hundreds of people there. You guys had really sort of coordinated areas for food and sleep and things of that nature. But I am shocked that there was no violence. There oh, was and the no streets me- are
1: like crystal clear and clean, right? People, uh, you know, uh, just washed the streets, like literally, uh, with, with water, not blood. Uh, and then... <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, everything is kept very tidy. There's even volunteer stations uh, where people give, uh, you know, free uh, recharging stations, um, education classes on the street because there's many students joining from all sort of basic education levels and so on. So uh, at one point, it's been described as a night market because there's so many people offering free food. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a it's a very peaceful bunch.
0: With everything that's going on in the world right now with Black Lives Matter, social discrimination, especially in the West, there is a heavy presence of the police and the military. Is there a reason why the Taiwanese forces, we'll call them, did not attack the protesters or the sit-in, especially since you were inside parliament, not just on the streets?
1: Well, the parliament uh, has its own police force and uh, it's not basically beholden uh, to the administration. And when some of the Demonstrators did uh, try to occupy the administration. There was violence. They were um, evicted uh, from the administration building. And so, I think one of the reasons is that the parliamentarians, uh, including many uh, from the DPP, uh, basically told the parliamentarian police that all the occupiers were their guests. They invited mm. them in. Uh, and so, uh, and with the MPs' immunity. Uh, from uh, police. And really, I mean, the civil disobedience uh, is part of their agenda anyway. Uh, and so they kind of acted as, um, you know, a shield layer uh, because the police would not hurt the MPs. That's also what the DPP MPs really helped at that point.
0: So how long was the sit-in in mm-hmm. total days? Uh,
1: around 22 days or 21 um, days and 22 nights, uh, to be
0: precise. What was the straw that broke the camel's back for this transformational change for the government? Did they just acquiesce? Like we were? were it's been twenty-one days. We, we we're not going to be able to to fix this. Yeah, something or like was that. It, yeah, something. Like was it really? Yeah, we have to agree uh, on all their demands.
1: Basically, yes.
0: Okay, so it was just as simple as that. And so what what happened afterwards then? Well, then uh,
1: we were hired as reverse mentors. That is to say, people who are under thirty-five years old, uh, young people. Uh, who work with ministers day-to-day to uh, to give advices and future directions while learning how the government works. So Minister Jacqueline Tsai uh, recruited me uh, and also uh, Tony Q, another uh, fellow occupier, as reverse mentor. We were both under 35 at that time.
0: And let's continue there with the minister, the prime minister, approaching you to become the digital minister. Because at this stage in your career, you're officially retired. From my yeah, I, I'm,
1: just, I'm just, you know, making purpose-driven software, which is the fancy term for civic technology. And that, at that point, I think I've been interned uh, as a reverse mentor in the uh, Minister Jacqueline Tsai's office for a year and a half uh, at that point. Uh, and so um, many people in the cabinet says, you know, yeah, they just promoted the intern to a ministry. Not a big deal.
0: <laughs> well, not a big deal, perhaps there, but here it would be groundbreaking news in, in Canada at the very least. Um but but I want to talk about your relationship between uh, yourself and the prime minister at the time. Um mm. did you guys already have a relationship? Did she know you just by reputation or can you talk to th- to that a little bit?
1: Well, uh Dr. Lin Chen, uh he uh did not work with me before. Uh but uh Lin Chen the premier uh, is uh well-versed uh in conversation with civil society organizations. Uh, And I I think this is a a really good point because Lin Chen is nonpartisan. He is independent. He doesn't belong to any party. And the premier before him, Simon Zhang, uh, ex-Googler, director of Google Engineering Asia-Pacific, is also nonpartisan and independent. So when they did a transition, Simon Zhang asked all the ministries to upload checkpoint documents to the internet for the next cabinet to kind of preview before they actually get into the office because there's a four-month a uh, gap between the election which was in January and the presidential inauguration, which will be in May uh, 2016. Uh, and that's how I learned about the Ministry of Works, uh, and not knowing that I would later on join the cabinet uh, in October 2016. And so Lin Chen did not know me, but he did know the V Taiwan work that we did with Minister Jacqueline Tsai. And I think both Simon Jong and Jacqueline Tsai spoken uh, very uh, persuasively and, and loudly, really, on continuing this nonpartisan tradition of civic consultation and technology.
0: Now, you hold the post currently as digital minister for Taiwan. But you're not an elected officer, you're an appointed one. Yeah,
1: I'm twice appointed. The president, which is directly elected, appoints the prime minister, appoints
0: me. And I think the way it was written when I was doing my research is that you're a minister without a portfolio. Am Mm -hmm. I wrong? That's right. So that that means that I'm a
1: horizontal
0: minister. At the moment,
1: there's eight horizontal ministers uh, in Taiwan and 32 ministers uh, with a ministry. So the uh, Taiwan cabinet is shaped such that uh, above or alongside, uh, let's do alongside, alongside the 32 ministers uh, with ministries, uh, we have eight ministers, including me, uh, to tackle emergent issues that are cross-ministerial. And so whenever the ministers, which each represent a different value, right, uh, cannot agree on something, the horizontal ministers uh, will uh, find a common value out of those very different positions.
0: So in part one, we're talking about how much uh, civic values are very important for you and you were at the grassroots. Mm -hmm. Now you're part of the government all Mm -hmm. of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Talk about how either your mentality changed or perhaps your perception of government changed Mm -hmm. with this appointment.
1: Yeah. I I never knew that public servants, the career public servants were so innovative. Uh, Mm -hmm. and they're the most innovative bunch I have ever met. Uh, and and I've worked in quite a few Silicon Valley companies. Uh, And it was just that they were anonymous, right? They were hidden uh, from the um, population uh, because of anonymity of the career public service. The appointees, elector, the politicians, and so on do the talking, and the career public service do the innovating. But because my work uh, is open government, I make sure that they can now uh, directly communicate to the citizenry through, for example, the national participation platform or uh, the mid to long-term project is there. There can be have a real-time conversation uh, between the civil service and the people who are interested in any of their work uh, way before the, uh, the decision is made. Uh, and that's a break of norm, by the way, uh, in the Freedom of Information Act pretty much anywhere. Uh, the publication is only after a decision is made. At the drafting stage, usually the consultation uh, proceedings are not published, or if they are published, only the metadata, not the verb, but then transcript uh, is published. But uh, all the meetings that I chair, I publish everything to the internet, including the transcript of this very conversation, yeah. uh, and so and so that's that's the, the key point. The, civil service see this way of open government as aligning with their values. They don't have to uh, work in the dark. They can talk directly uh, with the civil society, learning about the stakeholder needs. And in that way, they reduce their risk, save their time and increases trust.
0: At least in Canada, and I know in in many Western governments, you, you describe the relationship between the bureaucracy and the elected officials eloquently in that. The public service is typically, or the bureaucrats are typically in the background. They're not meant to be in the foreground because that's the politician's job. But you and I both know, as you've been describing, that in the 21st century, that's changing quite a bit and we need the public service in the foreground just as much. In Canada and other parts in the Western uh, governments, that has been faced with a lot of resistance because of a thousand different reasons not in their job description, it's not something they're comfortable doing, resistance from, the politi- from politicians. My question for you is, how was it welcomed in Taiwan when you were bringing in this drastic change? Now, you've been in this post for about four or five years. At first, I can't believe it was just puppy dogs and ice cream from, from the very beginning. It, there must have been some, some resistance to this concept. What
1: resistance? We are the resistance. <laughs>
0: about the career public servants, the people that have been working in the bureaucracy in Taiwan for 20, 30 years, the old guard.
1: Yeah, we we occupy the parliament. So literally, we are the resistance. When I look into the mirror, I see resistance. Uh, So, uh, right. But yes, the old guard. You you see, for career public servants, uh, our theory of change uh, really is that of a Pareto improvement, meaning that I talked about reducing risk by early consultation, saving time by automation, uh, and also increasing mutual trust by giving uh, people credit when credit is due instead of asking them to remain anonymous forever. Uh, And if things go wrong, it's always my fault anyway, Uh, and so (laughs) absorbing the risk, like personally. Uh, And so the important thing about the theory of change is that we never pursue one of the three goals of time-saving, risk-reducing, and mutual accountability by sacrificing the other two. And in many other jurisdictions, reformers fail because they uh, impose something that is more transparent, increase more trust, saves time, but increases political risk for the p- public servants. Or they invent something that would spread a political risk to all the multi stakeholder consultations, but it's so tedious. So it doesn't save time. It actually asks the public service to work overtime. So
0: if you make only Pareto improvements, the career public service is firmly on your side. You mentioned a moment ago about political risks. How do you balance the needs of the political elements of the government with your value system of transparency? Because I'm assuming you're a part of meetings within, whether it's with your premier or other colleagues at your level, that can't be shared with the public. Or am I wrong in thinking this as well? Uh, I do not
1: see uh, any confidential documents, period. Uh, in my office, there is a dedicated person with security clearance to handle these. And of course, and that's, I mean, I I do hear about it, uh, right? uh, In general terms, it's just that I cannot get involved uh, in cases that uh, is by national security law, a secret. And because if it's classified as top secret or secret, in our national security law, and I'm sure elsewhere in the world as well, any system that has any of its input as classified as national secret uh, has its entire system and output classified as well uh, as a kind of this osmosis <laughs> uh, principle. Uh, and so by, by building uh, literally a, a gap between me and any national secret documents, I make sure that anything that I share are actually open for people to know. And that doesn't mean that we live stream everything. Uh, we publish usually the transcript. And that's only after 10 working days of co-editing. So uh, if there are some anecdotes from a public servant's friend or family that they use in the meeting, but they have not cleared it for publication, they can just anonymize it. Or if they do say something that they think are actually a private joke or something that the public wouldn't get it, they can switch into a, a more harmless joke, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, but, but the thing about radical transparency is that it means transparency at the root meaning that if you don't do anything, the default is transparent. And if you do have to redact, you can do so in the 10 working days, but it takes effort.
0: And this is where personally, and and I want to bring down, I want to have the same conversation, but bringing down a notch away from classified documents. And there's a lot of, for example, in traditional governments in Western countries, just basic team meetings that are not necessarily made public, that Even if you were to make an FOI request, which is not necessarily classified information, you would come back with some resistance from the government or having a redacted government. Like, for example, whether it be like procurement, right? Procurement details on a contract. It's not a classified matter, but how how are you able to share that or balance the need for transparency on something like that with the needs of the government's requirement for, I'm not going to say secret, I'm going to say secrecy because I I can't think of a better term. Well, first of all, uh, I
1: think if the people who participate in the meeting meet in a face-to-face situation uh, and with no court reporter uh, or recorder uh, or uh, like good microphone equipment, then it's actually a lot of work to reconstruct the meeting record. And I I don't force it on people uh, because that would violate the saving time uh, access uh, of the Pareto improvement value. Uh, On the other hand though, because of that I'm a telecommuting minister, anywhere I am, uh, I'm working. uh, And so uh, we invest heavily uh, in uh, co-presence technologies. Actually, just like in our meeting at the moment, right? It doesn't take us extra time to to record. It doesn't take us extra time uh, to make it into something we can index and search. If we put it on YouTube, it doesn't take us extra time to come up with captions, YouTube takes care of that. Uh, And so uh, only when it's at almost zero marginal cost can you get into uh, the habit of radical transparency. So that's the the first thing. And the second thing is that, for example, for procurement, for a while, Taiwan's procurement, um, RFPs and all were only published to people who spent uh, a little bit of money to, to get the documents. So, it's, it's not a lot of money. Uh, it's like, you know, $1 US dollar or Canadian dollar, uh, but uh, it is a burden. It's not entirely open data. Uh, and so, there's always an outside game. Uh, the GovZero people, Roni Wong to be precise, uh, from the GovZero movement paid that money and wrote a scraper to scrape everything. And so, uh, then published it uh, on GitHub and something. So, um, I think the point here is that because we are the resistance, there is always a outside game. Uh, if people do not publish, for example, the campaign uh, donation and expenditure for a while, the control branch only offers kind of looking at it and then photocopying and with a watermark. And the Gav0 people, what they did is that they scanned everything uh, and did a open CV computer vision splitting of it into individual cells uh, and then asked people to play CAPTCHA uh, and to complete the OCR and they call it. Otaku character recognition, and so people would just uh, type in all the uh, digitization of the campaign expenditure, and, and so on. And the control branch, of course, that you know you can't be sure that you're completely 100% correct in digitizing. I mean, you say each cell has three reviewers or whatever, but you can't be sure. And and then the GovZero people is like, yeah. So that's why you should publish the structured data yourself. Uh, And so when faced with the kind of lesser of two evils, right, uh, either allowing this civil disobedience produce may or may not be correct data spreading around uh, or having to, you know, work with the legislators uh, to publish the campaign uh, donation expenditure as structural data, which is actually a one-time investment only in uh, getting the schema right and so on, the Korea Public Service would inevitably chose the later, but they would not choose this without a outside game.
0: And it sounds as though, based on your answers, that the leadership, so for example, if you have a minister's meeting with your colleagues, they're all on board with this radical transparency. There's nothing from the meeting that's not going to be recorded. You're going to go through the process that you have outlined and you're going to publish accordingly. And that's that's my working condition.
1: I I literally negotiated that with uh, Dr. Lin Chen, the three conditions of me entering the cabinet is first, radical transparency for all the meetings that I chair. So if I uh, was invited to, you know, uh, listen to one of the meetings and there's no decision made by me or with me, uh, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be radically transparent. But if I chair or if a decision is made anywhere, uh, including with lobbyists and journalists, and of course that's radical transparent. And the second is location independence, right? Anywhere I'm working, I'm working. And the third... uh, almost, uh, the, I think, the, the most important one is voluntary association, meaning that my team, uh, which comprises of like a dozen or so decodements, each from each ministry, uh, so their own ministry, they're posted here, but still working for their ministry. It's just I'm asking them to work out loud in a location, independent and radically transparent way. I don't give them orders and I don't take orders either. The voluntary association is my third working condition. And so, I mean, if these conditions are not met, I just quit. Uh, everybody knows about it.
0: Have other of your minister counterparts followed your lead when it comes to either one yeah, of yeah, those definitely, three? Definitely. Yep. Yeah.
1: So uh, the radical transparency, I think, is becoming more and more of a culture. The large-scale deliberations, like opening up the mountains, the opening up the ocean, uh, which is uh, part of Ministry of Interior and Ocean Council respectively, uh, they all take uh, such consultation or er- very early consultation. Like when they have no idea what to do, they start the consultation, and that's easiest to be radically transparent because all you have to say is that well, I have no idea. <laughs> Anyone have ideas? <laughs> and it's easier to be transparent. Uh, at that beginning, instead of uh, toward the end of the process. And so that has really spread. And because of COVID, of course, location independence is not just a good to have, it's a must for, for a while. I mean, we're post-pandemic for three months now. Uh, and then uh, the Voluntary Association is also interesting because for the mask availability map and things like that, uh, these are all civic sector innovations that were then reverse procured That is to say, we don't give them orders, right? The people just build whatever applications they want, but they demand that we open API uh, so that they can continue doing what they do, uh, working with real-time information of mask availability. And in that sense, it's voluntary association because nobody uh, signed a tender or something like that. Uh, Everybody is just in this for a multi-stakeholder collaboration.
0: Now, I want to move on to some of the more uh, technical work you've been doing uh, as Minister for Digital Government of Taiwan. V-Taiwan. you mentioned earlier, and a tool that you used, I think, to help create V-Taiwan is mm-hmm. something called Polis. Mm-hmm. And why don't you take a few moments here, for those who are not familiar with V-Taiwan and Polis, what they are. Sure.
1: So v um, VTaiwan uh, was Minister Jacqueline Tsai uh, and GovZero's. First collaboration, uh, Minister Tsai, back in 2014, uh, after the Sunflower Movement, I went to a zero hackathon and proposed that we build something uh, for people who have no clear representation. Uh, the example being, for example, Taiwanese startups that register in Cayman Islands. There's no association of those teleworkers. There's no unions of those people. Uh, so people who don't have a top-down uh, representation. Uh, how can we make rules and regulations to make sure that this kind of teleworkers or people who register at Cayman Islands can voice their opinions and even for emerging issues? like Uber and Airbnb and things like that, uh, can even include people outside of our jurisdiction, as Uber's leadership was uh, at that moment. Uber is now a Taiwan company. Actually, Uber Eats, another Taiwan company, and taxi the fleet, another Taiwan company. But it wasn't like that in 2015. Uh, and so uh, at the time, this localization is seen as something that is at tension with globalization. Uh, and algorithmic governance of cars uh, and dispatch is seen as attention tension with the proper use of roads according to the old cars' transportation rules. And so those dilemmas, those tensions, in the society, uh, we developed a consultation process called Taiwan. that is, uh, I think, groundbreaking in the sense that we ask people first to check each other's feelings. So in the process, after we crowdsource the facts and before we crowdsource the ideas, We crowdsource the feelings for three or four weeks. And so that feeling process is very important because it lets people see as a polity that after all we're quite close to each other. Uh, And the user experience, the polis tool, is such that people would log in and in the social media or national participation accounts, they will see one sentiment from a fellow citizen, like I feel. I don't know, passengers, insurance, very important. Uh, And they can agree or disagree. And as they do, their avatar would move toward the cluster of people who feel similar to them. But they also see their friends and families in all the different opinion clusters so that these are not nameless trolls, They're, they're friends and families. And there's no reply button, so you can't troll people. All you can do is to propose something else that's your feeling for other people to resonate or not with. Now, feelings, there's no right or wrong. But after three or four weeks, Polis always give us a report that shows most people agree on most of each other's feelings on most points and only like two or three ideological points like what's sharing economy that that people feel very differently about. And so we just table those divisions and focus on the consensus items and use only those as the agenda for multi-stakeholder consultation on the ideation phase and invite everyone who participated in the Polis who contributed into the face-to-face live-streamed meeting. Uh, And so the point here is that people would first confirm that we're all in this together, build common values, uh, that common how-might-we questions. How might we, uh, for example, ensure innovation on the road while, uh, like price surging or whatever, while ensuring that insurance registration and taxation remains fair? And once we have that common how-might-we question, it's much easier then to innovate and deliver the rules without
0: leaving anyone behind. It's a fascinating approach because a lot of times, like you're suggesting, feelings come afterwards. That's where the debate happens, right? Whether it's through an election or a pundit on TV, which is putting the cart in front of the horses a lot of the times. Now, I'm an avid user of Reddit. I'm a huge fan of Reddit and what it represents. Maybe you have a better way of describing it, but it's almost as though you created a better Reddit. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong in, in, in thinking it that way? Because you said yourself, you're mm-hmm. trying to avoid the trolls, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I created a better way to to use uh, Reddit uh, because <laughs> Polis, Polis, you see, is open source technology yes. from uh, initially Seattle, now New York. Uh, well, it's made in the world. Uh, and so, yeah, if you're interested, uh, we just con- concluded a, a conversation, uh, the Open the Ocean uh, conversation at polis.gov that TW uh, slash, slash ocean. And so that's something with some help from machine translation that I'm sure that you can look at how we actually use Polis in five consultations on how to open up the ocean. And for something more English friendly, I guess, uh, there's also the CoHack where we co-created using Polis, the norms around how to deploy privacy enhancing technologies to counter coronavirus with seven countries and 53 teams.
0: Has it been received by... Um... Taiwanese
1: uh, very well received I mean it's it's fun and games right literally uh well,
0: and- <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> well, what I mean more is 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 it become ubiquitous in uh-huh. in the nation Has it become sort of part of the language is a part part of the culture or is there still a bit of a mm-hmm. of an adoption that you're you're waiting uh, an adoption tipping point that you're waiting for
1: yeah as you can see from the domain name polis.gov.tw it's now just part of the governance structure. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and well, I would mm-hmm. say- is, is a government website, but no one ever goes there in Canada I know, unless you I know.
1: Well, <laughs> <clears throat> the join platform, which uh, in many ways is a successor of the vTaiwan consultation mechanism, but this time run by the career public service, not occupiers, uh, mm-hmm. now registers, I think uh, more than 12 uh, million uh, unique visitors uh, out of a country with 23 million people, so over half of the population. Uh, and so <clears throat> that's when we drop the E from the e-participation website. We just call it participation website, just like we don't say, uh, you know, you would just e-text me, email me, right? Would just say, you know, mail me. Uh, and so um, I think it's becoming a norm uh, in Taiwan. But truth to be told, we uh, only use polis in the national government when there's like three or more ministries involved. Uh, you very seldom see a single ministerial uh, use of polis and that's because when it's a single ministry they often already pretty much know where the stakeholders are and they can do consultations in a more traditional way but always uh, also with live streaming and so on it's just that they don't need to map out the stakeholders like from this great unknown right the great beyond but when it is uh like cross ministerial polis remains a very useful tool
0: and this is a question for a common uh, friend that we have, uh, Derek Alton. Hi, Derek. Uh, <laughs> He's going to appreciate the call out, I'm sure. And he actually helped me quite a bit in preparing for this interview. And one of the things that he was mentioning is we're talking about the algorithm that's used by Taiwan and mm-hmm. Polis mm-hmm. and in creating this map, this report. Mm-hmm. And in the spirit of Reddit, sort of mm-hmm. explain like I'm five. Mm -hmm. how this algorithm works in finding commonalities and Mm -hmm. feelings and and action and and policies. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in Polis, there are
1: two main algorithms, and that's code. When I say code, think algorithm, uh, because I'm explaining like you're five. Uh, So there's (laughs) two different code in play. When you're uh, looking at a Polis screen, the screen shows where your friends and family's position are in a conversation. And the positions, as you can see here, are in those gray group areas. And these group areas are determined, are created by some, a code called K-means clustering, which means that it finds with people's responses, what sort of responses tend to cluster together, to occur together, like if you agree on this sentiment, very likely you will also agree on that sentiment. So if you have, for example, used Amazon, uh, when they recommend you the books, you might also be interested. Or if you watch Netflix, uh, that they suggest that these are the films, you might also be interested. That is based on the commonality between people who prefer something and the likelihood that that person would prefer that something else. So that's the first code that we use. The second code is this like X and Y axis, uh, which is the horizontal and vertical line. And these two lines are what we call dimensionality reduction. You can think people's uh, opinions in this large space for each question that you resonate or not, you move upward or downward in one direction. And if you look into people's clusters, like in this room, you can find something that is the most contested. And you call that something most contested between the groups, like a line that most neatly divides those groups uh, into two parts. You call it the x-axis. And then once the group is divided, you try then to find another uh, issue that will divide it, not quite as much as the first one, but another angle that will clearly partition the group in four, uh, like four quadrants. And we cannot always find such a thing, which is why it's not always four groups. It's sometimes three or two or five. Uh, but the second, the y axis, the vertical line, is as much as the machine can to identify another wedge issue that divides the population. And so that's dimensionality reduction.
0: Are most of these dimensions? Politically motivated amongst the traditional spectrum of, say, liberal versus conservative? Or have you found much more nuanced aspects of dimensions? Uh, the divided ones are often ideological, of course,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. because these are the things that people feel very strongly about. And on the other hand, the consensus ones, which is always more numerous, are uh, commonplace. Like uh, you would think that it's uh, natural. Uh, but it doesn't get much airtime, meaning that it doesn't get into the political agenda that much. And so, for example, there was a Bowling Green, uh, Kentucky uh, City uh, Civic Assembly that you can read about online where they deploy polis. And there's like five divisive statements, more along the traditional uh, lines of ideology. But the top consensus of people was, and I quote, the arts are an important component of our K-12 education, unquote. That is to say the science, technology, engineering, and math STEM classes need to have art in it, making it steam. And now that's like, regardless of you identify as a Democrat or Republican, everybody is in favor of that, but it doesn't get political priority or agenda. And that's why it haven't happened at the time. And so for the mayor, it's like a low hanging fruit. Just implementing that, having a consultation with people who agree with that will immediately raise the mayor's re-election chance by maybe like 0.1% or something. Uh, And so that's what this software does. It lets us see the commonalities despite the ideological differences. We don't spend calories on those ideological differences.
0: I I love how you place that because obviously identity politics, especially in the West, has has run rampant over the last few years. And we only have about four minutes left before our time is up. There is one thing I need to ask you about before you go, which is you use the term virus of the mind quite a bit Mm -hmm. in many of your writings, Mm and your presentations. Mm -hmm. And I love how you talk about it. And I think much like how we ended it with a poem, I want you to talk about virus of the mind uh, to finish off this podcast episode.
1: Certainly. Uh, so, the idea of virus of the mind, uh, which, uh, well, is just a way to talk about memes, uh, is the idea that there are some pro social memes in the sense that if you uh, spread those ideas, ideas were spreading, uh, people would be more receptive of different ideas. So, for example, plurality is one such idea, Internet of Beings, one such idea, and so on. But on the other hand, there are also some more toxic ideas which I would refer to as ideologies, uh, that once you uh, believe that and spread that, you tend to be blind then to people's opinions and feelings that are different from those ideologies. So they're uh, um, anti-social means, virus of the mind. So the entire uh, job description of mine uh, is just on how to make vaccination so that we switch from linear thinking of technology uh, to a more pluralistic thinking of technology and once you hear about my job description, I hope you will also be vaccinated uh, against this zero-sum-us-versus-them uh, thinking, but rather see digital as a way to promote plurality. So maybe I'll just read my job description. Because yeah, like this. Well, yeah, go for it. Yeah, when we see the Internet of Things, let's make it a Internet of Beings. When we see virtual reality, let's make it a shared reality. When we see machine learning, let's make it collaborative learning. When we see user experience, let's make it about human experience. And whenever we hear the singularity is near, let us always remember the plurality
0: is here. This is something right out of the Matrix, the way you say it. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, I want to thank you so much for giving So much of your time for these podcast episodes, Audrey, is there anything that you want to say before we go? Uh, Just have a good local time, live long and prosper. And thank you all for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better. Or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear in the future. So until next time, let's make it open.